0: Tremendous eyes, but no imagination whatsoever. But boy, her eyes were fantastic. I don't know whether I'd swap my eyes for my imagination. I don't know. Never thought really about it. It's uh, ten after eleven. And uh, sw- speaking of uh, Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy, this is WOR New York, living in the never-never land. We'll be here till one o'clock. Ooh. And uh, I remember reading Raggedy Ann and Raggedy Andy in the morning and really swinging through this thing. And then the next series of books that caught me as a kid were the Oz books. Now, I'm I'm trying to take it sort of chronologically, and I, and I started to dig the Oz books. And the first Oz book that I read was not the original Oz book called The Wizard of Oz, but it was a book called... Uh, it wasn't Dorothy and the Wizard of Oz. It was a book called... Uh, It was it was about the pumpkin head. There was a guy with a pumpkin head. And his name was Jack O'Lantern, something like that. Very clever name. And uh, I, I remember one sequence where everybody was up in a nest in the cliff somewhere, and there was this girl named Ozma, and Jack Dawes were bringing little silver things and beautiful jewels to them that they had stolen. That's all I remember about that. And then later on I began to read a series of books... By a man named Percy Keese Fitsu. Has everyone? Has anyone ever heard of Percy Keese? Percy Keese Fitzu, K E E S E. Percy Keese Fitzu, difficult name to say. It uh, sounds like a tenor man having trouble with a cracked reed. Percy Keese Fitsu. And uh, he wrote a series of books called. Roy Blakely. And books about. Tom Slade, who was a Boy Scout. Roy Blakely was a Boy Scout, too. And a kid named Pee-wee, Pee-wee Harris. He was the funny type. Tom Slade was the big brother type, and Roy Blakely was the good friend type. You know, the three types of kids. And then I read a book. I don't recall who wrote it. I just read a book because I remember the the, the, the title. The title sticks out in my mind. Poppy Op and the Tittering Totem. <laughs> I don't know whether anybody else ever read this, but it was Poppy Ott and the Tittering Totem. Had this totem pole and it tittered, which is an interesting idea when you think about it. But Poppy Ott, I don't remember any more about it, just Poppy Ott and the Tittering Totem. Then I read a thing called Sam the Young Shortstop. It was a terrible book. And I remember that. Then I read read a book. Uh, I began to then. Oh yes, yes. This was an embarrassing moment. Then in my life began to develop. Somebody gave me a book by Stephen Laycock, and I was just a kid, one of the great humorists of all times. And uh, I, my life has never been the same since. I've I've never been able to stop laughing at everything. I guess it's what happens to you early in your life that turns you into either a, a sober, industrious, concerned guy like Edward R. Murrow, and you wind up there on. The big channels with the big people talking to you, or 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 you you go the other way and you wind up here on a Sunday night after midnight, wondering whatever happened to Poppyot and the Tittering Tuttlem. It's those little twists, you see. And I can just see the, the difference, of course, at the age of eleven, Edward R. Murrow was handed a copy of the children's edition of The Rise and Fall of the Roman Empire. Or or the the children's edition of Pilgrim's Progress or something like that. And I wound up with poppy out and a tittering totem. And, of course, I've been tittering ever since. And I've had plenty of totems around, too. It's a very troublesome problem. And uh, Jack-o'-lantern and the old jackdaws, I don't think Edward R. Murrow ever read, ever read Raggedy Ann or Raggedy Andy. He couldn't have. And not get that look on his face he gets, that concerned look. I mean, you know, you can't. And I, I'm certain that he never read uh, Stephen Laycock. I couldn't possibly have, because you. if you... I'll never forget what Stephen Laycock did one time. Just one thing. This is the kind of guy he was. He was a big wheel in the history world. He was a historian. But he wrote some of the wildest humor that's ever been written. And if you ever get a chance to look up Stephen Laycock, look him up. It's L-E-A-C-O-C-K. And I don't think any of his stuff is available anywhere, unfortunately. But if you can dig up any of it, it's great. And Stephen Laycock is generally considered by most... Humorous people who work in the field, as being one of the really great prime movers in that particular area of letters. But Stephen Laycock, this is the kind of thing he did. Now I'm not a believer in practical jokes, but he—he was a kind of guy who who who, uh, had a certain feeling for a kind of—I don't know—a borderline dignified yeasty area of life. Now, very dignified. Remember, he's a top historian. He's a Canadian professor. At one of the big colleges and he had this beautiful country place and on this country place was a lake and this lake was just one of these little pond type lakes you know and it was kind of a woodsy thing and he had the lake completely saned, completely netted he had it he had it completely drained and every fish that was in the lake was removed and then he had it refilled and then what he would do, he would invite his friends out for the weekend. And he had all these beautiful fly rods and everything around that he kept in the kitchen and all these things and that looked creels, you know, and everything. And the guys would come in, they'd say, uh, how's the fishing? He'd say, oh, we we often go. Beautiful lake. And in the dawn's early light, all the friends would be down there whipping the lake, you see, with the with the flies. And invariably, every day, some guy would come up and come back and talk about the terrific strike he had, the fantastic strike he had, and he almost did it this time. And it went out for years, and his friends came out to fish in his lake for over 30 years. He never told them about it, and they didn't learn about it until he died. For 30 years, guys came all the way out from Montreal and every place to fish in Laycock's Lake, which was renowned for its, for its rainbow trout. And for 30 years, he used to just chuckle quietly to himself and never said a word. Never said... See, that's the point. He didn't say, ha, 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 boy, I fool you, no fish. Nothing. It was his own joke for himself. And that was it. Like the most famous... uh, You you realize the most famous joke in history. The most famous joke in history came one time when this guy... uh, The the practical joke... I'm not a practical joke fan, but this one was a great practical joke... (laughs) Was this, there was this big society man in, in London who was a, a practical joker. And so he, he got the opera house and he put all the money involved. And he, he put, it was cost, must have cost $50,000 or 100000 or 200000 to do this joke. So he bought out the entire house for a performance of the opera. The entire house, he bought it out and he invited all these people. It was a big gala event. He invited all these people and he asked, and he, he assigned seats. he says, "Your seat is so-and-so." saying it was going to it was a very big social event. and he invited all these people, and he told them what to wear. Uh, he, of course, nobody got together, apparently nobody nobody uh, nobody because this was a very big social, but this is a very famous man. And so about 999 people arrived wearing dark clothing and, and uh, dark evening suits and about 228 guys arrived wearing white coats on the top. And they were seated strategically, so if you sat in the boxes, you read this giant four-letter word spelled out there on the floor of the opera in white coats. <laughs> Just thought you ought to know that you never can trust anything. Speaking of the trust, you get hung up on this reading, and the book that I I was reading from is... Uh, is a paperback copy that I picked up at the paper book gallery? This is the paper book gallery who's been a sponsor of ours for some time and every every couple of days I go down there and just browse you know pick up stuff that I want to use, some stuff I don't, and just just pick it up and uh it's a habit forming thing and I was uh, a couple of days ago I was down at the down at the gallery and watching the people stream in and out, and there is a certain look to on the face of people who spend time just browsing in bookstores, I don't know—it's there. It's—it's of it's, it's look you can almost pick them out on the streets. They have that vague look of of uh, kind of walking sideways from time to time. But this is the paperback gallery, and if you don't know about it, it's really one of the one of the big things here in New York. And as far as my reading is concerned, it's it's a very important area that they deal with, and that's the the paperback. They have the largest collection of paperbacks in the Western Hemisphere, I warrant, uh, because their whole business is paperbacks, and they have all the all the great paperbacks, all the uh, all the uh, publishing houses that you never seem to be able to get anywhere, the European publishing houses, and all the the paperbacks, which, well, they, they I, I'm talking about the expensive ones and the inexpensive ones too. They've got the paperbacks that go up to three and four bucks. But uh, this is really some place. It's it's a place you can spend 14 million hours in and never tire of it. Now, it's on Sheridan Square, and it's one of the swingin'est places in town. I hate to use the vernacular, but that's the only way to describe it. And it's open every night until midnight, and on the weekend, Friday and Saturday, when it really begins to boil, when it begins to hiss, it uh, is open till 2 o'clock in the morning. This is the paperback gallery. And the book that I was reading from, really, you'll find it uh, a, a real big buy. It's, it's a thing I've had for years, and I've always enjoyed it, because, you see, it, it isn't just humor. It also involves viewpoint, which, uh, I suppose, in a way, makes humor what it is, as opposed to comedy writing. And it was written back in 1931, 1066 and all that, the first time that I know of that it, it's been brought out on paperback. This is a Dutton everyman paperback. And I would suggest you find out about it. 1066 and all that. It's uh, available at the paperback shop, and they're on 7th Avenue and 10th Street. And in the village uh, further over east, they're on 3rd Street between, uh, well, just off Sullivan, the paperback gallery. Yeah. Oh, yes. Can I have my echo chamber now? Hello? Hello? Oh, I'll give my celebrated imitation now, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, an imitation which has been performed before many of the crown heads of several of the Midwestern states. Uh, this is an imitation which... That is my surrealistic version of the sound of cream of wheat just arriving at the boiling stage, which is a very exciting stage for a young boy to go through the boiling point. And I suppose uh, if we measure it carefully, watch it, watch it, watch it, watch it. We're getting closer and closer. It's beginning to come again. uh, There's nothing, uh, nothing, nothing I can do about it. It's coming out. There it comes. Oh... Oh Mammy Now come on, level with me, isn't that exciting? Wouldn't you like to sit in that little car next to Andy Gump? With old Andy there sitting behind the wheel? Heading out into the country? Back in the rumble seat is Chester? We will award the brass figlicky with bronze oak leaf palm. An aluminum cluster to the listener who rises above the mass, the morass, the mire of mediocrity. And tells us the name of the woman who used to work for the Gumps years ago, you remember her? There isn't one of you that can tell me whatever happened to her, why she got canned. What scandal is connected with the breakup of that once happy family? You know that men and that men and old man Gump have been separated for over four years and they've been keeping it a secret. Haven't said anything about it in the papers. And you know what happened to Chester? You notice he doesn't show up much anymore? It's awful what happens to people when they get older. Do you remember the name of that woman? No, you're wrong again. It's sad how wrong people can be. It's not Mamie. Mamie Mamie worked for Moon Mullins... You work for Lord and Lady Plushbottom. <laughs> Remember that? All right. All right, we will award the brass. We're just we're just trying to see how much of an American you are. Now we're not fooling around. We're not wasting time here. We're putting you on your mettle as an American. With all those papers spread out. All those Sundays, all those Sundays and all those Sundays. That go on back into the gray milkiness of the past throughout all, all those shadows almost untouchable I went back and revisited the old scenes I went back and revisited an old scene the other day we'll put you on your metal, all right, all right, give me, this guy's out there, we'll see I'll tell you another thing, too. I'm going to... Yes? Maude Green? No! Maude Green is not... Maude Green is an old millionairess. You remember about maw Green? They used to talk about Maude Green and her... And her... She used to... Wait, hold on just a minute. Yeah, listen to that. This is sad. Uh... We got a call from a man in East Hampton who called to say as a child he read nothing but Sandby's rutabaga tales. And now he doesn't work at all. I mean, look what Raggedy Ann or Raggedy Andy did to me. Seventeen minutes after... after... Seventeen minutes after midnight in the middle of the dial. Lost. Hey, listen, I'll tell you what. While you got your radio there, hold on a minute, will you, Shell? You got your radio there. I want you to try and experiment. Move the dial just a little bit to the right. Get off the station. Do it right now. Move it just a little bit to the right. We got rid of that crowd. We got rid of them now. Now we can swing. Let's go, baby. We can really swing now. I said, move it to the right. I didn't tell you to come back. I'll let you know when to come back. Now go ahead, move it to the right. Get out there in the darkness there for a minute, and then turn your volume up and listen to the hiss. I want you to really do this experiment because it's a fascinating experiment. Turn your dial slightly to the right. Lose, it and we'll we'll get, we'll give you the cue when to do it. Turn your dial to the right. Just a, just a hair, see? And when you get out there, turn up the gain and just sit there and listen to that darkness out there. Listen to that hissing, pulsing darkness. You're listening to space. My old man used to be full of all kinds of things like that. I'll never forget this thing he did one time. We're listening onto this overseas broadcast, and you know how short wave comes in? You know how it comes in without the shh broadcast from London now shh. And we used to sit and listen there, and he says, Listen, you can hear the waves. You can hear it's coming in overseas. hear the waves there? Somehow he had an idea that he could hear the ocean. If he listened to England, he could hear it in back of everything. So man is composed of all kinds of magical parts and parts and parts and parts. Any minute now, that totem is going to begin to titter. (laughs) And you're going to believe that it's there and saying it to you. Well, we are not simple creatures at all. Maug Green. Wasn't Maug Green the old gal who died leaving $18 million in cash and gold bullion and stolen rum in her basement? Yeah, Maug Green. They used to call her Maug Green, the financial genius. Yeah, that's right. I remember her. What was that? What? What's Apple Mary doing now? Yeah. Yeah, Apple Mary uh is is now Mary Worth, yes. I know. Hmm? Denny? Oh, sure, I remember Denny. Do you know that one time, do you know the one time I appeared in in Mary Worth in the strip? Hello. Did you know that? Well, I'll tell you, a very interesting thing. I'm, I'm going to now unload something that probably none of you ever... Uh, <laughs> it was just crazy. Have you ever seen yourself in the, in the comic strips? Well, I did. You see, I happen to know the guy who draws and who created Mary Worth. And a few years ago, he did a sequence based on a radio station. Do you remember that sequence? where the girl involved, you know, the girl who's always having the terrible romance and she wears glasses, you know, has a horn rim. she's a very sharp-looking chick, and, and uh, Apple Mary in the end, yeah, M- Apple Mary, Mary Worth tells her in the end that, that she should fix herself up and, and take off her glasses, and she suddenly becomes Ava Gardner. Well, I worked with that girl, and I worked in that radio station. She never was Ava Gardner. Glasses or no, nothing, nothing. She just couldn't see and kept bumping into the walls, that's all. But actually, I really did appear in the comic strip and the whole sequence was built on all the people who worked in the radio station. And his son is a radio man, John Saunders. And uh, all of us appeared in one guise or another with different names in, in this strip and he, he modeled all the people after us and he made them talk the way we talk. Yeah. There I was. I used to see what was happening to me every day. I'd get the paper, and you know, it was exciting. My life there on that page was a lot more exciting than the one I was living. It hasn't swung since. Yeah, then yeah, it was full color on Sundays. Yeah, you should have seen my complexion. It was great in those days. It was orange. Wonderful. And then one day, oh, yeah, balloons hanging over my head there. Oh, yes, if you look carefully, you'll still see I use that balloon once in a while. When I talk, you'll see it hanging over my head. And once in a while, when I get an idea, you ought to see that old light bulb light up. It's very embarrassing some places, you know. (laughs) And once in a while when I'm thinking these terrible things to myself, these little crosses and X's and circles and spirals show up over my head. Very funny bit. Like the other day in... Well, that's just another story. But anyway, what happened, the saddest day was the day that Mary Worth got on the plane and flew away and our sequence ended. None of us have been alive ever since. We have disappeared into limbo. Hello? Yep, you missed it. Yep, you missed it. Okay, I'll call later. Right? <laughs> no, I'll tell you, it wasn't. Uh, is anyone is anyone out there able or capable? See, this is this is part of the American heritage. It really is. It's a sad thing, and I'm not one of these people. Uh, the the uh, intellectual. Uh, Idiot types that sit around and talk about uh, hidden meanings in comic strips and all that jazz. But I'm merely saying, though, that, that comic strips only are popular because they do represent millions of the little fears and irritations of millions of people and so thence are able to somehow, somehow are able to communicate with them because they do represent that common sea of experience. And, uh, for example, Little Orphan Annie is probably the most, the biggest example of it. Where this child is, you know, and has a a daddy who constantly rescues her from terrible disaster. Good is always represented by, of course, Orphan Annie herself. And the forces of evil are always the other forces. And there is never any involvement with law or legal processes. When, When you're in trouble, you just blow the whistle and the asp arrives. And he beheads everybody. Which has always been a favorite sneaky American belief that that's the way the world should be, you know. (laughs) as was witnessed recently by several congressmen who used that technique to great advantage. Time tied in the affairs of the world. Speaking of affairs, uh, we would like to talk to you briefly about Worth Perfume. Worth Perfume. And uh, the new perfume... Well, actually, it isn't new. It's kind of silly that I should refer to it as new, but... Uh, for a long time now, we've discussed Gerevienne, which is, which is one of the prime Worth scents. There are four scents, four scents in the Worth stable, the Worth organization being French and being one of the oldest and most respected of the French perfume manufacturers, very high quality and old and very well-respected house. And one of these scents which is actually the newest scent in the Worth line, was was uh, put out on the market in 1936, 22 years ago. And it is the newest of them all, and it's called Vertois. And uh, Vertois actually literally translated means, well, how about it, baby, Vertois. And it's uh, in the vernacular, and, I, and I'm not sure that many people are familiar with the vernacular perfume, But the the perfume people have an entire vocabulary which they use to describe various scents. It's very difficult to describe them in any other way than to build up a vocabulary of your own. And they call vertois a youthful scent. Now, this is not an advertising phrase. This is what it is known in the trade as a youthful scent. Uh, It's a very light sort of perfume, and if you try vertois, if you go into some some store somewhere, and you want to try it, you have to give it at least four to five minutes. In other words, put it on your skin and let it let it uh, do what it does with the chemicals in the skin for four or five minutes, and then after that, it will be at its normal, at its normal state. It's one of those perfumes. And of course, in Vertois, they have a complete line of other things like uh, soap and so on. Vertois by Worth and uh, you'll find that it swings. And this is available in places, all sorts of top-flight perfume counters everywhere. Bond with Tellers and B. Altman's and Strawbridge and the Blum Store in Philly, so forth, R.H. Macy and so on. This is Vertois by Worth, W-O-R-T-H, Worth. Have you ever really looked at your mood, you know? You really look at it, examine it, I'm sitting here examining my mood here, just looking right at it, and I can see it. It's, it's looking out It's looking out of the brambles there. And uh, you can you can pull back, and you can look at it and pull back. I have this friend who keeps saying to me, look, I'm in a bad mood now. Now, just don't bother me because I am in a bad mood. So what for? Well, I'm just in a bad mood. Well, how come you're in a bad mood? Well, I'm just in a bad mood. Well, how come you're in a... B- I'm just in a bad mood until finally... Ah yes, the spiral nebulae. Haley's comet will be with us shortly. Be interviewed, very interesting and very, uh, I think, informative. Discussion will be held thereafter, shortly thereafter. Would you like to have an open class discussion? Would you like to have pointers? Would you like to have blackboard notes and scratching sounds? Well, I'll give you all of them in just a moment. It's going to happen. Speaking of scratching sounds, this is W.O.R. New York. And uh, we are on AM and FM, and we'll be here until, well, you know, how it works. Yes. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, you do know how it works. You know what happened to Professor Colton Myers' kindergarten, don't you? Oh, boy. Did that turn out to be a mess later on? Have you ever thought about what happens to comic strip people when they're not doing their act? What is in the panel to the right of the last panel? And what is in the panel to the left of the first panel? Have you ever wondered what I do when I'm not doing this? Yes. Oh, give me that, please. I hear it in there, Jerry. Just give me that cheer. That's what we need. Please, please, please. Please. No, no, give me the chair first, and then we're all going to go. Now, look, I want you guys to line up and call them a fours. Come on, you guys. Quit, quit fooling around now. We don't have any time. The captain's going to be out here in ten minutes. Who wants to volunteer to go down and look over the duty roster? Remember climbing up that Well, I I suppose, you know, uh, last week we did this thing on the bus, and a guy wrote a note to me, and he says, Mr. Shepard, you have the essence, the total poetry of bus riding in the Midwest. However, one thing I would like to ask, what happened to the woman who wears the short black coat with the cord trim, the one who wears the the, uh, very tight slacks and has a fuchsia blouse, who wears white socks and high patent leather pumps. And the one who almost always wears her hair piled up on top of her head and carries a shoulder strap bag. What happened to that woman? I thought I didn't even have to mention that woman. I mean, I assumed you knew she was there. I didn't have to mention the driver. You knew he was there. I mean, you don't mention the obvious old man. That woman has been on every bus. In fact, she, there are platoons of women like that who work for the Greyhound Company. People would feel insecure in the bus if they got in and she wasn't there. Always going to visit her husband at Camp Knox, Fort Campbell, Kentucky. She's always on her way to Camp Polk, Louisiana. Or she's coming back from Chicago. Or she's going to Lexington. You guess, and she never quite gets to Lexington. She always gets off at a stop two, two towns before. Two towns before. And you look at her, and you can just see nothing but a whole series of ex people in her life. Ex people. I mean, ex. She's got ex kids, ex husbands, ex worlds, ex sailors, ex everything's, and she's an ex people. And she wears these white, these white socks with these shiny black patent leather pumps. Which is a combination that seems to be part of the world. Now, you, you don't have to discuss things. You don't have to talk about a Saturday afternoon. Because everyone knows what these things are. I remember one time, you know, it's a funny thing. I remember arriving. There are moments in your life when you, you, you arrive on the brink of of a, of a kind of loneliness which is not necessary. You know what I'm going to do one day? I'm going to go down to 34th Street. And I'm going to get a bus, 34th Street. I'm going to get the bus that used to go to used to go to Little Silver. Actually, it went to Red Bank, New Jersey, is the one we used to take. And I'm going to get in that bus and I'm going to and I'm going to stand up in the center of the aisle and it's going to be at 10 minutes after 11 at night. It's going to be dark in that bus. I'm going to stand up in the center of the aisle. I'm going to hang on... I'm going to hang on one of those aluminum pipes they have on the top of the bus there. And I'm going to ride to Red Bank, New Jersey. And I figured that by the time we reach one of the tunnels as we're going out, the back of my neck will already start to itch from my... from my ODGI shirts and I'll begin to have that vague O.D.G.I. perspiration cleaning fluid smell that all G.I.s have. With just the touch of of barracks bag mold. Just the touch of it. And I'm going to fall half asleep about, oh, about 45 minutes out. I'm going to vaguely fall asleep hanging onto that, that thing. And then we're going to arrive at Red Bank and the bus is going to stop there in front of what used to be the theater and is now a roller rink or something or a bowling alley or a supermarket or whatever it's been converted into where the bus used to stop. And I'm going to stumble in my sleep and I'm going to tell the bus driver before before I get on, I'm going to say, look, when I get off, I want you to call me soldier. And I'm going to walk past this bus driver half asleep, see, and he's going to say to me, Good luck, soldier. I'm going to walk out on the street, and it'll be about 12.30, see, and I'll I'll begin to develop the panic, knowing that I'm 20 or 30 or 40 minutes past the time I should have gotten back. And I'll start working it up, you see, within me. And I'll look around for that crummy cab that charged you $9 to take you out to the camp. And I'll hail this guy. This same guy will be sitting there in his in his 41 ford his cab painted black the big round dot on the side in yellow paint that says cab i'm going to walk up to him and i say how much you want to take me to monmouth he's going to say 9 dollars now look in my wallet you see i will purposely only bring 9 dollars and 75 cents with me this is the most I ever had ever in the Army. This guy knew it, so we charged $9 to everybody. So I'll give him the nine bucks, and I'll get them sitting back. And, you know, I'll sit back in the seat there where five other soldiers have just sat. You can still smell the sneaky peat and the barracks bag mold. By now, it's about quarter to one, see? And I'm sitting back there, and we start heading out to, start heading out to Monmouth. We finally get at the front gate, and he says, Here you are, soldier, because by now he figures I am. I'm just in civvies. I'm going to get out, and I'm going to walk past the front gate. I'm going to keep right on walking until I, I find Company C, of the 15th. And I'm going to walk through the streets, those dark streets. I'm going to feel in my pocket for my pass. And then I'm going to have this sudden feeling of this terrible feeling of, of... Just this sick feeling. I've lost my pass. Then I'll walk in the orderly room. And this G.I. is going to be sitting there, see? This guy with the glasses on. This, this continual, constant, eternal CQ of all life. guy sitting there with the glasses and he's reading an Ellery Queen mystery. And his phone is ringing. Picks it up and he says, Company C. Yeah, okay. Yeah, I'll call back. And he hangs it up and he looks at me and he says, What do you want, soldier? I'll say I forgot my pass. He's gonna look at me narrowly and say, You in this outfit? I say I sure am all my life. I'll be in this outfit all of my life from here on eternally. I've always been in this outfit. Say, I don't recognize you. Never saw you in the mess hall. Say, don't you remember me? See, no. And then suddenly the shade of all these other guys, these millions of other guys who were in Company C with me, all the guys with the glasses who lost all their passes, I don't know where any of them are who have ever been there. Millions of them. Fat, round, old Sergeant Robinson. Fat, round, old Sergeant Robinson. You know the kind of guy that has a roll of fat sticking out of the back of his neck over his collar. That guy had those rolls like that all over. They stuck out everywhere on him. He was just one big round roll of that. He sat there with his horn-rimmed glasses. Old Robinson, Sergeant Robinson, used to sit there and yank passes by the hour. He'll be looking over my shoulder, and all of us. I'll say, well, I guess you're right. I'm in the wrong outfit. I'll turn and I'll walk down the company street... Go back out the gate, and I'll hitch a ride into Red Bank. And I'll stop at the Red Bank diner there, and I'll have a Western sandwich, just as greasy and as rotten as ever. I'll sit there and I'll eat that Western sandwich, and I'll wait for the, I'll wait for the return bus. And that bus will be sitting out there in the street, dark, you know, and the bus driver's in some place having coffee. He knows this town. Pretty soon he comes out, and you hear him slam on the doors and turning on the lights, and I'll go in, I'll sit by myself. And then a couple of guys will straggle in from Monmouth, going on three-day pass, and I'll sit in the back. And the bus will start up, and he'll turn off the lights, and we'll head back to New York, 34th Street. Doesn't that sound exciting? Doesn't that sound exciting? Doesn't it sound real and exciting? The moment... Yeah, I'll just get in that old bus and come back to 34th Street. Moments, 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 always moments. I'm back. I'm back. back. (laughs) Wow. I was there. I I remember seeing a, a, a picture. I don't recall what picture it was right now. Let me think now. There was a sad moment where this guy, it was the opening of the movie, and you saw a man riding on a bicycle. Do you remember this picture? Does anyone else remember it? This man was riding on a bicycle, and you could tell it was an English countryside. Do you remember that? And he didn't say anything. You just saw him riding, and then he's looking around. And then he stopped his bike, and there was a long shot, almost at ground level. And you saw nothing but grass growing, this great grass waving and... He walked into the grass, and he walked around, he kind of looked. He reached down, and he picked up a tin can that was in the grass, and he looked at it, and he threw it down. And then he he picked up what appeared to be some kind of an old part of a machine or something, and he looked at it, and he threw it down. And then he just stood and looked out over the field. And he's looking. And as he looks at this field... It began to kind of dissolve. Do you remember that? And suddenly you saw it was the same field. It was dissolving, though, into a, into, into a field that this field had been a few years before. And you saw a couple of B-17s coming in. Do you remember that? It's a f- very, very peculiar, touching moment. And I've often wondered what Camp Crowder looks like now. I know what it looked like then. Kind of. And the funniest thing of all, in the middle of Camp Crowder, can you imagine in Camp Crowder? Camp Crowder is a name that strikes terror in the heart of any, any G.I. who ever heard of it. Camp Crowder, I will say it again. You're getting shipped to Crowder, man. You are on orders. Nothing I can do. They came down from 2nd Army headquarters, man. What do you expect me to do? Why don't you go complain to the battalion? Go ahead. Go see the chaplain, man. You are on orders. Don't ask me. You turn around, you go back, and you sit in your barracks, and you know that your time has come. The following E.M. in compliment will depart at 0800 with rations and quarters... Lieutenant J.L. Watanabe, 0170608 in charge of party. Mm, yes, they have been cut. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it.